Welcome, everybody, to Adventures in Machine Learning. Today, the panel is myself, Ben Wilson, Francois Bertrand. Hello. And we're joined today by Antonio Alegria, who is heading up a very interesting company that is doing AI-assisted software development. So, Antonio, if you could uh, introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. Hey, Ben. Hey, Francois. So, I'm, I'm Antonio. I'm head of AI at OutSystem. So, joined joined three and a half years ago, really to bootstrap a research and development group that is attempting to transform how software development is made by leveraging artificial intelligence to guide automate and validate developers work. Essentially, the metaphor we use is we're trying to embed a tech lead of some sorts within the product that could help in some of the more technical tasks in augmenting developers ability, lowering the skill level required for some of these techs and accelerating productivity as well. Sounds fantastic. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. As Ben might know, one of my main things I repeat on this podcast is that so much stuff in software we run into you thinking like, this is 2021. Shouldn't this be automatic or shouldn't this just work? And then, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's what, what the kind of thing you do, but that sounds very interesting because, yeah, like a lot of computer-based tasks could use more automation and you, you know you could do it. It's just sometimes companies just don't get to it or don't have, they, they don't view it as urgent enough to be uh, to be uh, handled. So I'm really curious what you'll have to, to say about these. Yeah, definitely. I think so. That that's kind of a part of the DNA of OutSystems. So OutSystems has this uh, you know, software development platform that is uses a visual language and a set of abstractions and takes care of the whole life cycle of software development. Right. So it abstracts away a lot of the complexity into end when you're developing your mobile apps or your web apps or even core systems of corporations. And one of the challenges we have at OutSystems is that we want to simplify software development, make it more productive, open it for more people while not losing the power. Right. So that's a very tough balance, right? Because you can create a very easy software development experience just based on templates and just filling in a few forms, right? But then you will hit a wall right away as, as you want to tailor that to your business and to your needs. And so when you get to this place where you want to make the simple, easy, and the complex possible within software development to, to really create these enterprise-grade mission-critical systems, um, we believe that on top of improving the programming language and the frameworks and the libraries, which is a, a trend that has been happening over since, since the first programming languages were invented, we believe that there is a place for AI to go to that extra mile, that last mile of customization, of adapting it, of taking care of some repetitive work. Of a lot of these different tasks, with even with improvements in programming languages, there's still a gap between this technical work and what people actually want to do. 
because software development in the end is is the gap between you want to achieve some outcome, you know, want to develop some applications to automate something, and you need to convert that into a series of steps and tasks, and then tell the computer of that on, on a relatively low level, right? So we're trying to bridge that gap better, not only with better programming languages, but also AI. So is the is the current intention for the system to learn how to solve performance issues? As an example, we're we're iterating through a collection in a backend system and we're connecting to a database, kind of LTP, we're retrieving some information and let's say a junior developer who's straight out of school writes some code, they use a for loop. It's synchronous serial operation. And the first thing that the tech lead does on the, the PR is like, hey, this this won't scale. So you need to, to make this asynchronous. You need to use some sort of parallel operation and make sure it's thread, thread safe. Does your platform analyze stuff like that and say, I'm estimating that the data processing uh, pressure here is low enough that I can use multiprocessing or threading? And will it actually construct proper code for somebody to do that? Yeah, so I was, the listeners won't, won't, won't see, but I was actually smiling when you came up with that example because that's actually uh, specifically something we, we're providing in the platform, right? We have, so, so just to give a general overview, we are using AI across, we're trying to use AI to help across the software development lifecycle. I would say in three different ways, right? One of them is to help guide developers. And what I mean by guide is we're trying to, you know, look at the behavior of the developer while they're using the tool, understand if they are stuck, for example, like this is, it seems that the developer is stuck. They're still learning. They need something. We try to infer when they're stuck and when they're stuck, we try to provide them with the right piece of documentation, snippet, et cetera. Right. And this is very useful for people who are starting off with a platform. Since it's a powerful platform, you know, there's a lot of things you, you can do and you can just have them train for a bunch of weeks, and then they, they go in and use the platform. So we're trying to give that guidance. The other one, the second one is automation, which is we provide suggestions, right? Autocomplete suggestions with, with code patterns that you might want to use and autofilling the variables and all of that, right? So for common patterns we've learned from the data, we can help developers understanding what they need to do next and fill that in for them, right? And then the the last one kind of kind of capabilities we have is on validation. And this actually answers a little bit of, of what you were asking. And we have a code analysis engine, right? That understands a set of learned bad patterns of code, right? That are associated with bad performance in production. And it detects them. And it, we try to push that as much as possible to real time, right? With a good user experience, we want to nag developers all the time, but we, we that's actually something we, we work a lot on the user experience side. And one of the examples is exactly, there's a lot of patterns associated with a database accesses and, and for loops and people that instead of doing a join, they, they do a, they fetch data, they, they do a for loop, and then they go and fetch from another table. And what we're trying to do is detect those patterns and flag them and highlight where they are, but also then a guide and, and down the line automate the fix replacing them with a good pattern and not just we we're not looking just to replace code with code and just kind of 10 lines of code 10 labs of code one thing we're also trying to do is package those good patterns as a component so that instead of you just replacing 10 lines of code you could replace 10 lines of code with one line of code that's you know high quality just need to pass on the right parameters and so on 
Yeah, that was one of my questions looking at your platform about AI because yeah, there, there, there's a there's a lot of moving parts to uh, to the system, right? There there seems to be like a almost like a widget or a component drag and drop kind of interface thing, and I'm not sure if you do that if it's just for interface or if you do actual logic with one component the database component talks to this you know other you know this query component and then you fill in a query and then everything is is behind the scenes i'm assuming you have maybe that at a high level and then you have a low level override for the the power users is that kind of how it works yeah. and then the follow up yeah, so, the follow up yeah. will be where where is apply ai applied the most right is it more at the component level or f python literal python codes being looking looked at yeah uh, great question. So the platform essentially, uh, most of the time, developers will be using our visual language. So high-level components, abstracted away components, high-quality components that they use to build the UIs or even to construct the logic behind that. It's possible to extend the system. So you could use JavaScript to extend and create your own UI components. You could use .NET and other languages to extend the, the backend side of things. But that's typically, we want that to be as little as possible. It's easy to do, but we want that to be an exceptional case. In terms of where we're applying AI, we're applying AI currently 100% on the uh, high-level components and abstracted side of things, because that's where we're investing. We want to make it as powerful as possible so that the people do not have to learn and understand JavaScript and do not have to learn and understand .NET and other kinds of uh, what we call traditional traditional code. That's one one goal that we have. Got it. So right. So you're so if you were to query a database a certain way, you would kind of drag and drop fields and, and that kind of thing. Would you be writing SQL queries or uh, non SQL yeah. kind of stuff? Yeah. So you have we have a visual kind of visual way for you to create queries. You also can write, you can override that and write SQL directly. And and so one of the things we're working on, not ha- not giving a lot of details on this, but one of the things we're working on is definitely how do we make creating this this kind of logic of data fetching as simple as possible for people without a computer science background, right? We don't want people to have to learn about SQL. And even from a UI perspective, sometimes if, you, if you're configuring things visually, if you're doing it a lot, it kind of becomes a little bit cumbersome, right? You just want to get it done. You want to say what you want and, and get that done. And I guess that that focuses your that simplifies the AI work because as much as I, I thought it was cute to see uh, there were articles recently about, I, re, I forget which system was writing custom code, right? You say like, uh, render a snowstorm on a black background. It would just write code. Uh, if you, I, my, yeah. I, I got that article recommended by my phone this week, so I thought it was cool. Yeah. But that's really hard to, to do code. I'm assuming when you're dealing with components, you have a lot more control. Of course, that's at the cost of some flexibility. But yeah, so have you been able to, uh, you know, what kind of AI do you apply most? Because there's the autocomplete, you mentioned is one thing, but what's the what are the coolest or more forward-looking uh, things you're looking at that where AI could really help? Yeah. So we have an interesting, I think, advantage, for like, like you mentioned. It's not just that we're dealing with these components and with, with a visual. It's, it's an actual programming language. You just do it visually, right? And you have these components as well. But that, so our code is not text. Our code is actually a graph, right? It's a graph of operations and a graph of components that are all connected together. That simplifies some things, but it makes some things harder as well, right? It's not as, let's say, flexible and easy to just throw, let's say, a language model, transformer-based language model at it, for example. 
right? So we work a lot with graph, graph neural networks and we have a lot of development and, and patents and technology to work with deep learning networks applied to graphs specifically. And that's, that's interesting because we can kind of encode all of the relationships between the code uh, across the application dependencies, this variable reads from the other variable, you know, this database is, is, is being used in this screen. All of that information, we can feed that into the deep learning network. And that feeds a lot of context that allows us to give suggestions that sometimes are very uncanny. And people are really like taken aback on how that was able to suggest something that is not trivial, but it kind of gleaned that from all of the context and what has learned. Another advantage that we have is that our platform has data from the development cycle, right? You have the code, this graph of the code, but then you also have the generated application, how the application is used, the performance online, how developers built the application. So all across the, the life cycle of a software development, you have this data, and this is really powerful. In other development tools, typically you have this separated. Like you might have an IDE and you have the code and even the Git source code, but then you do not have, you do not understand how the apps are used what's the performance profile, what's the usage patterns and all of that. And we have that advantage, especially because we also have our cloud SaaS product where people can develop using our tool and then deploy the apps without having to deal with any infrastructure and all of that. And that's a big advantage for us. From a technical standpoint, I would say that what distinguishes us and, and I think the, the, the most interesting capabilities we have are around this code understanding, understanding what the developer is trying to do and giving them the right suggestions and not a completing things very quickly and very accurately, as well as the code analysis part and guided refactoring part, where we are not only finding bad codes of pattern that affect performance, but also for technical debt, right? Understanding refactoring opportunities that are not trivial and guiding them to refactor them. And in some cases, even refactor automatically. And for that, so we essentially use two kinds of technologies mainly. We use graph neural networks and we use also automated reasoning, which is a field of AI that is not based on machine learning. So it's more based on logic and reasoning that is automated. And this these two things complement each other very well because in, many times in software, you need to have things that you know will work well instead of just giving suggestions that you will need maybe spend more time afterwards validating if things are actually valid and, and applicable to your field. And, and also one thing that we're pushing a lot is, is how we kind of even further lower the, the barrier of entry and the skill set needed for software development, approximating things through natural, natural language, and kind of really taking, reducing the gap between the intent of the developer and the end result as well. So the reasoning engine, the heuristics-based rules that you're saying, if I'm detecting this as a construct that has been created as a DAG of code block execution, how does it know or how does it recommend, hey, this block of code needs unit tests around it and this other one maybe doesn't because all you're doing is is utilizing some open source package that hopefully that's been unit tested and integration tested. So we don't need to test that. But here's a bunch of custom logic that I'm detecting that is specific to your business and your data. So flag this for a unit test. Yeah, so currently we do not have recommendations for, for unit testing. That's actually an area we're, we're exploring while on the unit automated testing and uh, test generation or even guiding the test creation and finding the critical paths, the high-risk paths that you probably should focus more of your tests on instead of just having 100% coverage. Really understand where you need to look at your tests. Uh, so there's reasoning engine is, is I wouldn't say it's rule-based. It's more of a constraint-solving 
and you kind of state the constraints around what perhaps what makes good code and it can very quickly and at scale optimize and find the the either find the, the bad patterns that fill the constraint and even then find what would be the transformations that would make that an equivalent but much better solution so things like understanding equivalency between code and understanding the 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 actual output of the code with symbolic execution and things like that is also something that we're exploring and we're trying to do. So we haven't yet gone into recommendation of unit tests. What we do more is understand these are patterns that will have a bad impact on either technical debt or in uh, performance, highlighting them and providing recommendations for a transformation. That, that almost better. sounds like compiler optimization logic or, uh, or assembler optimization, but applied to a graph as opposed to written code. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so a lot, some of the technology we use, for example, is we took some inspiration from technology that is used for detecting malware, for example, right? Where you do not have exactly like this is the pattern of the malware. These like we have a catalog of known malware. No, you have some fuzzy understanding of what malware patterns look like. And then you're able to detect them very quickly in software that you've never seen before, right? Specific. And we're trying to apply that, but for bad code smells, let, let's call them bad code smells. And we, we, we even kind of see it more as automating or guiding the code review process, right? So especially with junior developers, I think the example that Ben talked about was exactly this, where you in junior developers, the this more senior members really need to spend a lot of time guiding and looking into code reviews and finding these bad opportunities. And we're trying to, at least for a certain percentage of common bad use cases, detect that as soon as possible. Maybe when someone is, is developing and explaining and teaching them and, and helping them do that right. Yeah, another example that pops out to me is something that happened to me uh, earlier this week was forgetting that I spent years writing Scala code and, and Java code for infrastructure. And I'm working on a Python project now. So I totally forgot that Python doesn't have tail recursion built into it. So I did this implementation. I'm like, oh, I'm going to recurse over this and keep the code nice and clean. And then exception gets thrown. It's like recursion limit hit. I was like, oh, geez, I forgot Python can't do this. Move it over to a for loop. And I'm like, oh, I can scale to 50 million recursive entries now with a for loop. Whereas if you do that in this other language, that is a big no-no. You definitely want recursion, uh, basically feedback in the the state of the function back to itself. So it, your tool is able to to detect stuff like that based on my my next question is the elephant in the room for any of the data yeah. science listeners. How yeah. do you get your training data? Yeah. So yeah. So the the, the training data we have is from uh, anonymized. So so this the, we have two sources of data mainly. So one of them is how developers use is just telemetry, anonymized telemetry of how people use our tools. Right? Mm-hmm. Where where they click, where they use, how they create this the sequence of events. The second one is is the anonymized, and we kind of uh, scrub it and, and anonymize it, the, the source code, essentially, mm-hmm. of customers that use our cloud product, right? So that's something that is used and processed and compiled for for running the applications, actually. But we also use that then to train our models and detect these, these common patterns and all of that. So for detecting a block of code or a sequence in a DAG of execution as being performant versus not performant, that's only possible through your cloud SaaS offering, correct? Because that's the only way you would know what the performance is of comparing different things. Or do you actually generate like 
here's what we think is the optimal case. Let's run tests on that, see what the performance is and scalability, and then let's intentionally generate some some bad conditions and make sure that we have explored that search space. Yeah, so so currently we do not def- so so the AI capabilities we provide in these kinds of automations we do not differentiate them between the cloud customers currently and the on-prem ones. We just learn more from the cloud customers and then we take those learnings and the models and those can be applied because they learn about these patterns that are have a high propensity of bad performance or are known bad performance as well. And we also flag them for for customers that are using on-prem and but in the, in that case we're not using their data for training. I am curious, yeah, because there's some things you'd think like code auto-completion, things like that, where you can just throw user data at it and and kind of see patterns in the or you know, like this points to that or you know, very short-term things. But for higher level performance issues, such as the ones we just mentioned, is that something you can use customer data, or is that more like on your side, heuristics driven or human driven as far as recognizing some patterns? Because yeah, or is it kind of a mix of both? Yeah, so currently most of the, the performance detection and analysis and recommendations, they are based either on a set of you know first party and second party apps that we have with partners and things like that that are fed back, or from just very extensive field experience and we get kind of get examples and this those we kind of so the way we're as a as a difference, so instead of encoding these patterns as a set of rules and heuristics, what we do is we, this is a bad pattern called, I don't know, bad database access. And we provide a set of examples that fit that asset. And then we, from that, our, our mechanism is able to automatically, from those examples, detect a pattern that doesn't need to be exactly the same as that those ones, but it kind of extracts the essence that those patterns represent for that performance. That's right, yeah, so it. the AI is more about fuzzy recognition out in the field more than recognizing the problem itself out of nowhere saying 100 users are getting 100% CPU usage when this is happening. This is kind of maybe the next step, but this isn't. That's the next step, yeah. It feels that's the crazy, next <laughs> crazy harder than than that. But it's good that yeah, you're sort of starting with just the pattern recognition, and maybe in the future, auto unsupervised pattern detection. Yeah. So well, let me j- just connect those two steps. So that's the next step. But what we're trying to so we have this engine that is able to, with a few examples, detect patterns that are similar, even if it's not the same, right, in the field. What we want to do as the next step is we want to mine from the performance data and the code that we have examples that then we can feed back into into this mechanism. So it just plugs back in, not only automatically mining, but also getting the feedback loop from the tech leads and the architects that are in our customers that could configure that, even eventually have them with custom patterns for their own code bases. Because we know and we get a lot of feedback from architects and tech leads that they want to tailor that as well for their own code base and their teams, because maybe in their teams, there's a specific specific kinds of requirements and patterns that make sense for them that are not in, in a standard uh, package. And we don't want them to have to code these patterns. We want them just to give examples. Okay, this is a few examples of what I do not want to see. And from then, you could you could automate part of the code review process as well. Wow, what a what an interesting idea and a, a real time saver. It seems like everything that you're touching on is when you're trying to build you know, actual production code everything that you're describing is a massive time sink. PRs are one thing when you're dealing with a very senior team, but if you're hiring a large group or a large uh, 
sort of start of junior developers who are coming in to work on a team, not much velocity is happening on that team for at least three to six months because PRs are taking a week uh, to go on multiple multiple iterations of fixing things and doing tests. Simple stuff like, hey, I'm connected to this database. The tech leads are going to get rather tired of reminding you know, 10 different people, hey, you forgot to close your cursor on this. Let's not lock the database. You know, it's identification and bringing up those patterns that are detected like that en masse and through an automated tool is, I think that's really the future of software development and creating these IDEs that can support that. Yeah, and what we're seeing as well is is that I think I remember having a conversation with our CEO about specifically that and we had, and what he was saying is that what we want is, so sometimes customer, and this is not, something that never happens. You, you, you guys know that. It's sometimes what you detect issues when the service goes down, right? So that's the worst case yeah. scenario. It's like the, it's the shift right, completely shift right. It's you understand the bugs that, and when it goes down. We want to kill that. We want to remove that, th- those kinds of occurrences, right, as much as possible and shift that as much as possible to close to when the developer is creating, right? And even so that there's learnings. I think we've seen, I was in a conference in Facebook which would so Facebook has as great team internal team working on dev tools and they have like fantastic loop where they have automated code review for some things test generation and then uh, automatically suggesting patches and have kind of all of this connected right and one of the things that, that they saw is that they had they had a code analysis engine I think it's called infer and they had this and every after a commit people went and and, and they could go there and see and see what were the warnings. And the adoption was really, really, really small. Nobody nobody looked at it. But when they pushed that into the development process with their developer tools, like everybody started adopting it. And the, the quality of the code started improving tremendously. And so we really believe, I think Google has the same experience. I've seen them doing that journey. So as much as we can shift this kind of analysis, and not just kind of flagging lots of different warnings and that people, you know, it's false positive and, but being very accurate and relevant and helping fix. I think that's, that's really the secret. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, rocky road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. 
And I'm really looking forward to helping people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. One thing I saw at a company is that when somebody checked in code that broke one of the tests, we just sent an email to the entire team saying, this person broke the build. And then that, that quality went up. Like, oh, for check-in. People started checking, <laughs> double-checking before checking in code. But that was a bit extreme. But it did work. It did work, yeah. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah, I mean, hopefully there's not too many of our listeners out there who are pushing blind code to master. But I do know it happens. And yeah, that's the worst sensation that you can get. It gets even more difficult with a nascent field like data science work, where data scientists are working on developing a model. Uh, there might be some tests in there. Usually it's human-based tests and doing validation of data extracts. But personally, I don't see a lot of people actually unit testing their data science code when they're creating a, a custom function to do some processing or whatever it may be that they're doing for feature engineering work. And then usually they find out about this issue weeks after it's already been in production. Somebody notices that, hey, there's this weird pattern on our predictions what's going on here? And then yet they have to go back and manually step through the code and then somebody finds the typo. They're like, oops, uh, that was supposed to be a floating point number, not an integer. And yeah. yeah, like detecting those issues in data science work, I think is even more critical due to the complexity of a lot of implementations, not the standard cookie cutter, like Kaggle style. Oh, I have this clean yeah. data set and I'm, I'm yeah. just copy pasting code from the, a demo somewhere. But like real production ML, like complex stuff, such as what your team is building. Uh, do you see that as something that's on your roadmap or is it currently something that is supported as analyzing data science and AI work? Yeah. So um, our platform also provides components and tools for developers to integrate AI into their own applications. I wouldn't call them kind of, they're not data science power user tools. They're more for developers that perhaps want to integrate, you know, some kind of a natural language analysis or image analysis or some kind of common use cases that you would like to train with your data, but you kind of have that pipeline well-defined. And we try to simplify using the data that they have in the platform in their applications and getting that and integrating the applications. But we do not have, we do not have that power focus on the data science side. But internally we do we we face a lot of a lot of those issues and one thing in my experience that has always worked very well is you know making sure that whatever you are developing from a data science perspective in offline like in the lab when you're training the models testing the models is exactly the same thing that you put in production right so the pipeline so make sure you use pipelines that transform the data that you could apply of course, in production, it's going to be different because in production, you're going to receive maybe one one instance at a time. And in, yep. But use a framework that knows how to shift the modes between them, but the code is essentially the same. If you have handoffs to another team that is going to implement the feature engineering, that is going to be running on a microservice, that it's going to put on a Redis or a Cassandra, you're really kind of increasing the chances for things to be different. And then you will have problems in production you'll be very slow in putting things in production and iterating and and you're going just going to increase the chance of, of being, being problems. So I, that that one is one thing that we believe a lot and we try to do. And then having really good monitoring analysis of the data offline and monitoring the distributions online as well. 
across the different stages. Doesn't mean it's perfect. You all you always might might have problems, but having that good monitoring and trying to have a solid tooling that allows us to do this, which is use the same code for training and, and production, I think goes a long way in, in help. Yeah, that's one of the parts of one of your demos that I saw online that made me grin was you had a code block. It's just a, a function that was acting on some data. And user clicks on the, the code block and says, add logging. And I was like, this is great. I mean, that's the most sort of soul-crushing aspect of writing any API is going through and boilerplate adding all sorts of logging statistics to everything. It's something that some people forget to do. I've seen the entire code bases where they're print statements to standard out. It's like, what are you doing? You're, like Nobody's ever going to see that. And then other places where somebody just makes a logging wrapper around everything, just makes a decorator that just captures every single parameter and they don't realize that that might not be what you want when you're processing some complex uh, collection set or it's an array of arrays of arrays. And then that log event is now, congratulations, you just filled your logs with a gigabyte of data uh, that you're never going to be able to parse or nobody's ever going to want to parse. So just seeing that in that interactive demo, it's like, man, that's awesome. You know, you could just put that on there. It's going to handle yeah. something because it's not something that's sophisticated or fun. It's something that's necessary uh, for you to do during development, but it's not a creative pursuit, like solving a problem. You're, you're doing mechanic work on top of your code. So having the ability to automate that is... It made me smile. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And I think, uh, I think, I think Francois was, was talking about a demo about. I think it's probably related with GitHub Copilot or Codex. So this is the new uh, OpenAI model that you know you can use natural language, and then it fills in the code for you. And one of the things that we've been seeing with people that are using it is that you know you have a very impressive demos, but then the problem is that it generates a lot of code, right? So it's just generating a lot of code that you need to validate. It generates a lot of boilerplate, which you need to validate, you need to check, you need to maintain after that. And one of the things we're trying to do is not just generate a bunch of code. We're trying to help you using the right abstractions. So as much as possible, we do not want to suggest and give you like, okay, 10 lines of code. We want to suggest something that is meaningful and is abstracted away and fulfills the outcome that you want. Otherwise, you're just going to kind of, it, you can be very fast and it's good for exploring new libraries. I think that there's a lot of potential there. Exploring new libraries, how you're going to do, but then you will still have the maintenance issue down the line. You will still need to code review that. You will still need to check if there's no security issues there uh, and all of that. And that thing that there's, it's, an, uh, it's a double-edged sword. So are you saying that within a code base, your tool is going to detect if there's copy pasta? Somebody has taken some chunk of code and it exists in five different modules that are part of the entire project and says, you need to abstract this. Like We're creating yes. a class for you. Here's the method that does yes. this. Yeah, we, we don't have, so the next, we do not have yet uh, in production the mechanism to then do the automated or guided refactoring to just kind of mm -hmm. take care of that for you. We already detect that and we highlight that 
across your different modules and factories. So we have a tool we call Architecture Dashboard. And so this is a, a visual tool that shows your whole code base and your all of your modules and analyzes for technical debt. And it's one of the things that it's able to analyze for you using our AI engine is these opportunities for refactoring. Oh, that's where great. it's like this copy paste. Uh, some of them are not. So it's not just strictly the code is exactly the same. Maybe the code is a right. bit different, but you could refactor that out. And it could be inside. It could be like you could have this subset of code within a much bigger function. And in other places, it's the whole function. And in other places, just a different subset of the function. And we can detect that. And for some of the cases, so we're, the next steps are going to be for some of the cases, we can definitely, with high confidence, which is super important in these things, is to automate the refactoring. For some of the cases, you probably need some guidance and some UX, and that's a challenge to work through. What's the great right UX? With a lot of these automations, we've we've seen that sometimes we have the the technology, we have the algorithms, we have the knowledge, but we do not have yet very very in a very solid fashion. What's the the right UX so that pros don't get annoyed, getting in their way, but you're helping novices, but pros can use it when they want. It's like all of this balance is is an interesting thing. Yeah, Clippy was a good next step for us. Yeah. <laughs> the old Clippy and Word was a bad example of yeah. annoying yeah. users with trying to be helpful. Yeah. That's an important message, I think, for a lot of data science teams in general. And it, I really like the fact that you mentioned it in the way that you did, which is we have the solution. We know the math behind it. We know the algorithm to use. We've, we've solved it internally, but we don't know how to create the product out of it yet. And it's, that's an experience that I've lived through where we have all these really cool tools internally on the data science team, and maybe our product isn't ready for this yet, or we haven't figured out what that UX needs to look like. We haven't gone through the evaluation of user testing, of doing focus groups and saying, hey, we have this really early private preview thing we'd like to show you. Can you give us feedback on it? And that's incredibly powerful for, I think, people to hear from a company that, that lives on top of an AI platform is that product component of it. doesn't matter how fancy your implementation is in the back end. If you can't get the product thing done or figured out, then don't release it yet until you have that because most of the time you just get one shot. If you release it and it is clippy, <laughs> if people are just going to see it as an annoyance or are just never going to interact with it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as a user, there's nothing worse than getting unhelpful pop-ups and then you're like you just want to kill these things and you start ignoring them you're like that's not at all you know i i shouldn't reuse this code because it's slightly different and you're not seeing it so now from now i'm going to distrust everything you throw at me so yeah that's gonna be a challenge that's a big challenge especially with these kind of intelligent capabilities is that the trust there's because people look at these capabilities as uh, as an entity as almost that it's as if it's alive right Mm -hmm. and so there's a trust component at play here. And so if if people lose trust on that capability, it will be very hard for them to gain it again, even if it improves. I think a great example is Siri on the iPhone. I, I kind of went through it, which, you know, Siri didn't work very well in the beginning, arguably still doesn't work very well. But a lot of people just gave up and me, myself, gave up on using it because, you know, it was always failing to understand what you want. And so you don't use it. And then after sometimes, actually, I forced myself to go back and use it a little bit more. And then, oh, okay, it's actually useful for some of these things. But there's a lot of the trust component. And we've seen that, that as well, especially in software development. You have, you have different kinds of people, right? But if you, if you look at the most experienced developers, for example, they really are they're very attached to their tools. They really do not want anything to get in their way. 
right? And they're very suspicious of things that will maybe automate things and give suggestions and all of that. And this is something that we've seen from experience, but also we've talked with other companies, for example, for, with Microsoft. You know, we talked with a research team that we're working on in Telecode, that is in Visual Studio. And I remember there's them saying when they're doing, they were doing internal tests, they, the experienced developers didn't want to test it. Oh, I don't, I don't care about this. It's not going to help me. And so they had this challenge because you know they couldn't get people to test it. And I think that's a pretty normal thing. And then you have that. And then when they trust it and when they test it, it really needs to to be good. Or at at least if it fails, it can't give them more work to to fall back and recover. So you really need to nail the, the user experience. Uh, and that's something we invest a lot in. So one thing that we do is we we embed... So, so our group, I think, is it's kind of a philosophy in our group. So we have uh, these research scientists and machine learning engineers, and we have you know software developers and product managers and UXers. This is all within the same group, and they collaborate a lot. And it's very... We try to, as soon as we have let's say, an early version, a baseline model, even before that, we're kind of targeting a certain capability, we start doing user testing. We involve the UXers. And oftentimes, we find that sometimes the model is not perfect on this these cases. And we find that the best solution is not going to be to add the, another model or improve the model. It's just to add a prompt or a guide or an autocomplete in the UX. And that will fix the whole problem and it's going to be much better. But you really need to have that feedback loop and their closeness between the machine learning team, data science team, and the product team and the UX, right? And have that as part of how they work. And it's really crucial, as you were saying, especially as you're pushing technology and creating new capabilities, to have that feedback as soon as possible, because otherwise you could have the best models, but then if it doesn't fit well in the, in the user experience in the product, especially in a development tool, right, with, with the demand that it has and where productivity is paramount and people don't want to be annoyed, yeah, that's really something you need to nail very well. Yeah, it's a funny thing that I've, always, I've noticed in talking with other SaaS companies, the ones that are super successful in their realm are the ones that dog food. Like you force your teams internally to use your tool and you select people to say, hey, you're using the dev branch, like the, the least the release branch, <laughs> maybe not individual yeah. commits, but you're using something that has all of its tests passing and provide feedback, frank and honest and incredibly blunt feedback to the development team when something doesn't work the way that it should way before you ever release that to a customer because even though the criticism might be pretty intense internally because people are so emotionally involved with the product and the company and they want to see it succeed, you're going to get indifference from a customer in the best way if something doesn't work or you're going to get hostility. So that's great to hear that, that your team's doing that internally with your UX team. Like, hey, use the tool. Let us know. Yeah. Does, does this annoy you? Is this correct? Yeah. yeah. And we even... Yeah, one thing that we have, I think it's an advantage is that we also have people inside OutSystems using OutSystems, right? To, mm -hmm. to develop some components and products we have. So they are like legit users of the technology so they can give us feedback. But we also have a series of what we call MVPs. So these are people not working at OutSystems, but they are you know, developers with experience. They're kind of within the MVP program. And we also do a lot of user testing with them and early testing, even in the, in the, even in the prototype stage where we just have a mock-up and we have. And it's very interesting because some of the MVPs are really tough. Like they really give you very tough feedback <laughs> and they're very skeptical. But it's amazing because... Uh, we just have a feature we're developing in kind of the first session. The person said, okay, I, I don't see any use for this. I don't see this using, I, you know, I, 
this, 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 this sucks, right? And then we did another session where we already had a running prototype and he said, oh, I haven't, hadn't been excited about the feature this much for a long time. And it, it's tough, but you need to kind of create the mindset in the team that you need to go through that. You need to go through that bad feedback. And I think especially in AI-powered features where there's a lot of expectations mixed into this, there's a lot of the UX that you need to fill in. And in this case, there was there was already a lot of expectations of what good looks like and, and like, oh, I've been already disappointed with a lot of these things. So I don't think this is going to be useful, but then using it and seeing where it can help change their mind. But if you do not do this and you go outside, you will have a lot of people with this mindset. They are not going to trust it. And then you will find it hard to get back the users. And if you do not have the users, you won't have more data, you won't have more learnings to continue to iterate. So that's something that's really important for any, I would say any machine learning team to do as soon as possible. Bit of a harder question and you don't need to answer, but have there any approaches you found where AI didn't quite work as well as you would have hoped and you had to kind of uh, abandon these these uh, these lines or at least put on the back burner or again you don't need to go into detail but if there's anything particular you think stands out yeah i think we've we've so we've done a lot of i think research and experimentation in a lot of different paths that didn't pan out right didn't work weren't good enough maybe we're good for kind of a demo but then when you put it out there with users and user testing, it doesn't work, right? So we had to backtrack and put it in the back burner. But I think from our experience, a lot of them or, or, or most of them, it was because of a lack of enough data with enough quality or variety, right? So we've, I, we have an example of a capability that we hit that. We did not have enough data with variety because it was very sparse and we did not have an, enough representativity to, for the model to learn interesting things at scale so that users would use it and it would be amazing. So we put it in the back burner and that we came back with more data and with a different mindset, in a mindset very focused on data collection, data labeling, and having a data engine to instead of just focusing on the algorithm, and improving the you know, neural network architecture or you know, feature engineering or even putting rules at the end, we're focusing on getting the right data and making sure where, where, where is the data lacking? Where do we lack diversity? Can we label it more? Can we, can we do that? And that has been having a lot of good impact right, for a lot of these use cases. I think a lot of, especially in software development, there is a big challenge uh, because you might have patterns that are common, right? But there's a lot of very specific things between different teams. Like every team maybe names variables differently or writes things a little bit differently. And so there's a lot of sparsity in the data. And so one thing that we're doing and we're adopting more and more, and I think a great example of, of, of this applied to self-driving cars, not applied to software development, is, is Tesla's team and Andre Karpathy with the you know data engine philosophy where you really, instead of being focused on the models and the and the algorithms, you're focusing a lot more effort on the data and understanding where you're, you're performing uh, worse and then having people look at the data, getting more data, labeling more data. Mm-hmm. And sometimes machine learning engineers and data scientists are kind of labeling data that's that doesn't scale. We're not going to be able to do it. But we've been doing it a lot and it works. Even myself, I kind of go and label some data and it doesn't take a lot. Maybe in a week where you would maybe spend time in refining the algorithm and training a bunch of models and doing rules to kind of fulfill the gaps of the model. Maybe you spend that working on the data and you will see a huge impact. And more than that, you have a scalable system that can evolve over time much faster. So we've had 
to answer your questions, we've had a few of those uh, cases where in the end it doesn't work as well. Mostly it was about data. Uh, and so after putting it in the back burner, maybe collecting more data as time goes by, in, improving the product as well in how we collect data, then going back and focusing on this data loop is what kind of then works to get these on the right track. Great. Yeah, I, I think that's a brilliant example because, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the we talk about that kind of thing on the podcast where, yeah, this is the more, maybe the, you know, quote unquote, boring aspect, but it has a huge, much bigger payoff than, yeah, tuning hyperparameters to get a, a slightly incremental gain. Whereas if you just get more data, you can make a massive impact and that, that would make sense. And I think it's, a, it's great to have a, a real world example of that. Yeah, it's, it's the exact same thing I see at every client that I talk to at Databricks is, I mean, some teams already get that. They're usually the more experienced ones that have had to learn it the hard way, much as you have and I have. <laughs> like, oh, if I just use this other algorithm, maybe it'll perform better. Everybody gets to the point where they realize, I mean, eventually, if they've been doing it long enough, they're like, okay, it really is a data issue here. Or there's all these latent factors that are influencing the actual, not just the correlation, but the ability to leverage a correlation to get an accurate prediction. And when teams get that and they realize, Hey, 80 to 90% of what is successful here is our data. It's, it's not the algorithm. And a lot of algorithms can perform rather similarly, provided that you have sufficient data. It's data cleanliness, but it's also those latent factors. The more of them you can capture, the better the performance is going to be. And sometimes you can actually get to areas of code model and algorithmic complexity reduction, provided that you have enough data. At least from my experience, like, hey, we don't no, need this fancy implementation because now we capture so much of the actual root, you know, the root correlation between what we're trying to predict that we can simplify this and we can lower our cost by, you know, a thousand or so. Yeah. And I think on, on our side, because of the nature of the problems we're dealing with, where actually deep learning is the better fit to encapsulate the relationships of the data and what we want to encode, right? But And that brings the advantage of we do not need to do as much feature engineering. We just need to make sure that the data is presented in the right way and we have the right architecture. But then with that, the way to scale is to improve the data here and things kind of the model will scale. And if you're in a use case where there's a lot of you know benefit from feature engineering, maybe just some doing some windowing functions and aggregations and things like that, where then you have code and it's it's kind of that can also have an impact how you manipulate the data. But if you're really in a, in a field where deep learning is really kind of the, the best way to go, you can scale that this way in a very effective way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges is there's not a lot of great tooling. Unless you're working with image images, there's not a lot of great tooling for this part of that. Of, of you know the data labeling and curation and all of that. I think that 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 stack. I think is still not there. A lot of teams need to build it their own. There are some things, some startups working on that and, and some even uh, established companies with data science platforms that have some things for that. But typically, they're more for more standard use cases. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things for image. But if you're a little bit outside of that, that's you know that's something you need to build yourself. You need to be inventive, but it's definitely a good investment. So it's always one of those things that there's a lot of friction for teams to adopt because of that. But it's really worthwhile. And once you can get the team to shift that mindset, I think 
you start working in a much more effective way that gives you medium-term payoffs down the line instead of just iterating to an algorithm and just kind of going in stabilizing your performance and you're there and that's it, you kind of get something that will give you a bigger payoff down the line and you will scale faster. Yeah, and particularly as you start adding for for your use case uh, that your company does, as that starts growing and your customer base starts growing, you're going to start getting new data coming in for retraining all the time. But it's not just more of the same. You start landing more big enterprise accounts, for instance. They may have established standards on software development that go back 40 years that it doesn't matter what the open source community is doing. It doesn't matter what all the startups are doing in San Francisco or New York. They just do what they do in the way that they do it. So that could be an entire paradigm shift for your model training. of Like, hey, we now have this huge chunk of new data that doesn't look like anything that has come before that we've trained on. And having that labeling system in there or that ability to collect that data in the granular sense that you need in order to capture the nuance to it. I I wouldn't just say it's a medium-term payoff. That's You're playing the long game there by having that system set up to to enable labeling of that new, completely different paradigm-shifting data. Until that you get a huge company that uh, uses a really bad anti-pattern that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then you need to deal with a huge influx of conflicting data. Anyway, good good opportunity, good good challenge. This is hard. Code code is hard. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. It's Are you hard saying that the... there's enterprise companies out there that, that adopt anti patterns, Francois? No, I've never seen that myself. So that's <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We've seen some things that are really I like those patterns where you ask how what's going on that led to this. And we know, we know what goes on. You know, that's the, the schedule and you know, teams are just they have just one more fix and they just add it to the same function and then it goes. But it's it's interesting. Sometimes because our code is visual, right? So our code is visual. So you can see visual patterns. We've seen we've seen uh, code even sometimes internal, right? Uh, partners and customer service, uh, customer success developers you are you actually see it it's almost like a japanese garden right you have this kind of flowers and things like going on in the code but if someone wants to try to read that it's that's that's a big challenge so i think there's a lot of as you were saying in software development there's a lot of let's say mechanical work that in principle shouldn't exist right in principle it should be just getting to the data transformations and the visual output that you want to place in your application without having to deal with all of these kind of tiny technical things, especially as you want to lower the skill set needed for developers. You don't want to lower the skill set so that people just don't think about what they need to do, right? They need to get the mindset, but you don't want them to have to learn all of these nitty-gritty details of, oh, I need to put this thing here specifically and the logging needs to be done exactly like this, otherwise it's going to blow up in production. Hmm. So that's exactly what we're trying to do. It's it's very challenging, but it's also, I think, very interesting and in kind of having the, the right team kind of also helps. And understanding that it's all part of, you know, shipping early, getting feedback and iterating and getting the right feedback loops and the data collection and all of that in place. All right, so we're heading up onto the uh, the end of the the session here. So, is there anything any any parting comments you'd like to make about your company? Anything you'd like to talk about in general as we close this up? I don't know. I think so. At OutSystems, we're at this very interesting stage. I think not only with the AI investment, but the investment we're doing 
you know, from a cloud perspective and cloud automation and, and abstraction, you know, we're really gearing up to so uh, to become a software development platform, not just kind of a low-code development platform, but a software development platform that really enables every company, even companies with a lot of legacy, right? They're not the Silicon Valley, San Francisco, New York companies that you were mentioning, but all companies to really innovate fast with software. That's really our goal. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for us and a lot of opportunity and, and I think space in the market for these kinds of tools. We see it a lot in companies that are struggling to scale their software development. Every company really needs to, to be capable and very excellent at developing software. And so we're excited and I'm personally excited not only with this evolution and, and what, what is you know going forward without systems, but also in the market in general. Like I, I, as we're seeing from the AI perspective, the all of the innovation that is taking place and all of the changes is going to make not only in software development but I think in across many different tasks. I think for me as a you know as someone who is in the field, I think and you guys as well, it's very exciting to see what's what what is what we can expect in in the next years. And I don't think anybody can predict and there's always good surprises coming. Definitely. I, I would not have expected that a platform like yours would be as far along as it is, if somebody had asked me 10 years ago. It's amazing the progress that is being made and how people are leveraging some of this technology, in particularly with deep learning. And graph-based yeah. deep learning, I'm a little sad that you guys are patenting stuff. I understand why you're doing it because there's a lot of work involved there. But I think that's the next frontier in deep learning applications is allowing the embedding of that complexity into those systems and eventually somebody's going to open source a really robust way of doing that or set of standards. But it's awesome that, that you guys have cracked that code in that way and are doing an application of machine learning that is this complex. It's, this space is ridiculously complex. Yeah. So good, good on you and your team for building this. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a master class. It's going to be a four-week master class where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. So let's get to some picks. Francois, would you like to go? Sure, sure. Uh, usually you go with more like tools and, and things like that, but you guys do softer picks. Uh, so that'll be my turn this week. I'll revisit a, an, an old classic, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is a really great book to show you how ineffective you are and you should really <laughs> do more. No, it's just, it, it has some really great points and some good personal, you know, relatable stories to, to nicely illustrate that point. There's a reason why it's a classic. And I had read it like 20, 30 years ago and revisiting it, uh, you know, it held up pretty well. So, oh my God. <laughs> For those Antonio's. at home who don't see, Antonio just flashed the book at the camera. So yeah, there you go. My pick for the week. Awesome, Antonio. Get a get a pick other than that book. <laughs> a pick? What should I pick? What should I pick? Whatever you're most like, interested uh, in recently. Whatever I'm most interested in. Okay, I would say it's, it's, I think, passed from the past two weeks, but 
I would recommend everybody to you know watch the uh, Tesla AI Day. I think that's that's one of the best examples of a really well done uh, you know machine learning strategy and implementation at scale. Right, the engineering there is incredible. It's I think self driving has been going kind of through the uh, hype disappointment uh, cycle. I, th- I would say, mm-hmm. but I think Tesla even though they kind of hype, they were always saying it's next month, we're going to have stuff driving for everybody, that Elon. But from an engineering perspective, I think the way they're doing, I think a lot of teams can learn from that and how they're uh, approaching the problem, like from very data, data-centric data uh, perspective. And so I would recommend kind of watching the AI day, Tesla AI Day and checking out uh, Andre Karpathy, who is their director of AI interviews in different podcasts you can find across the net. It's really good for any AI practitioner. Yeah, can confirm. It was fascinating to watch. My pick for the week is an inverse of Francois. I'm going to do a tech pick this week. Uh, It's a team I've been been following. They're in startup mode. They just got some funding. It's called ZenML. And we were talking earlier about pipelines and how critical they are when you're building something in sort of offline batch mode and you're training something. You really don't want to have to write a bunch of custom code to re-implement feature engineering in traditional supervised or unsupervised models. So what they're trying to attempt to do and are succeeding at so far is reinventing the concept of the pipeline in open source uh, that allows you to plug in pretty much any open source tooling that you want around a pipeline API that is very simple and easy to, to use. It kind of looks like some of the stuff you would see in SK Learn, except far more fully featured. And it allows you to portably uh, take that pipeline, execute it on the environment of your choice. Some of the future stuff they're working on is Apache Spark integration for like Databricks, and then integrating with MLflow uh, for tracking. But you can run it on Kubernetes, you can run it on Dask, you know, whatever you want. It'll run like that, but then you can take that pipeline artifact and just run it on a KAS cluster if you want, put it in a pod and wrap a, a simple REST API around it, and now you got real-time serving. So check them out, zenml.io, and it's a really cool team. All right, so now we're, we're up with the picks, and uh, how are people going to contact you if, if you'd like them to come and ask you more questions, Antonio? Now, my recommendation is just ping me on Twitter. I'm at Antonio Alegria. Uh, maybe it's in the show notes or something, but that's kind of the yep. preferred way to reach out. Have I like, like having conversations on Twitter and kind of reaching out through there. So that would be it. All right. Sounds good. And uh, so thank you for coming to talk to us today. It's a fascinating conversation. It's a pleasure. All right. And that concludes today's episode. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.